hosts, and but we are coming up. I think it's relatively close to about five weeks until the Feast of Trumpets. Not very long now. So really looking forward, and we're trying to get geared up for that, and have everything in as ready, as much in readiness as is possible for those events ahead. But let's go back to the book of Romans today. Uh, we're picking it up in chapter 8. I made more than three verses last week. In fact, I covered two whole chapters, didn't I? So maybe I won't get persecuted unless I only make six verses today. We'll see. I want to reiterate the last verse of chapter 7 where Paul says, I myself serve the law of God. His mind, his spirituality, his emotions serve the law of God. But with the flesh, the law of sin. Now, that's a pretty important statement uh, when people are trying to use the context of Romans to prove you don't have to keep the law. He says, I serve the law. If you serve something, that means that it's important to you. It's something that you're very much involved with. So, he's not saying it was done away. He's saying, as I live day by day, I serve the law. It's my flesh that has the problem and creates sin. Then in chapter 8, he carries the thought forward. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Emmanuel, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Now, why is there no condemnation? Because his sacrifice covers, obviates, obliterates our sin, washes it away. And if you don't have sin on your record, which is the breaking of the law, then you have no condemnation coming, not condemned. So we are in a position, once we try to obey the law, as long as we obey it, He gives His Spirit to us, and we are not condemned if we make a mistake because the blood of Christ is there to forgive that sin. Now, as he said before, should we sin then more so that we can have more grace? God forbid. But understand, we are not in a state of condemnation anymore. The rest of the world is condemned to death under the, under the uh, precepts of the Old Covenant. And God is going to judge the whole world based on the Old Covenant because they've not been given the new one yet. So he can uh, legitimately kill off most of the population of the earth for sin that has not come under the new covenant under the blood of Christ. It still remains, in other words. And they will die for it. Now, that isn't an eternal death. That is simply a physical death, just as Adam and Eve did. It can't, comes on everyone. It's automatic, because all have sinned and come short of the glory of God... And from Adam and Eve on down, everybody's died. So, if they die in this end-time situation we're going into, uh, it's the same as if they died for some sin they 
did in 1436 or whenever they lived. It's automatic. But now for us who've been given the Spirit of God, we still serve the law. We still keep the law. But if we make mistakes, we are no longer in a state of condemnation to be condemned by our sin. It can be forgiven through the blood of Christ. So we have something very, very special there that is not offered to very many people on this earth at this time. A lot of them think they do, but they have been deceived into a false Christianity that gives them a false hope that is not a real hope at all because it's not based on truth and the sacrifice of Christ does not cover us unless we have the truth and obey it. Then it does. He'll say that here in a little bit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Emmanuel has made me free from the law of sin and death. See, he, he puts the law of sin and death together here. When we mention under the law, we mention under the penalty of the law. That is, if you break the law, then there is a penalty. And here he's saying that, free from the law of sin and the death that results from sin. We will not have to die for our sins anymore because we have the forgiveness of Christ. So we're not living under the same law that the rest of the people in the community around us are living under. They're still under the law of sin and die. And they are sinning and they will die. Now, Christ's sacrifice was not there for our physical survival. Nowhere does he promise that the blood of Christ will protect us from physical death. There is a difference. We're still going to die, aren't we? Some of us already have. Because the promises in the new covenant are not about physical life. They're about spiritual life, eternity. Now, he says we will benefit from the Spirit of God and from healing and various things as humans, but that's not what the new covenant is about. So, yes, we will physically die like it is appointed to all. But under the new covenant, we are not living under the, con the condemnation of eternal death. That penalty can be removed. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh. See, nobody could keep the law perfectly. And therefore, if they ever made a mistake, ever did sin, then they were condemned to death. So, the, the law was not weak of itself. It wasn't a bad law. The problem was with people who couldn't keep it. Weak through the flesh. God sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us through Christ. Now, interestingly, he makes that statement there. The righteousness of the law. 
Now, people try to tell me that the law is dirty and ugly and nasty and hateful and get as far away from the law as you can. And they use Romans and Galatians to prove that. But right here in Romans it says, or talks about, the righteousness of the law. The law determines, defines righteousness. It also defines sin. You keep the law, that's righteousness. You break it, that's sin. So the law itself is a law toward or of righteousness. Going contrary to it is unrighteousness. So he sent his son to look and sound just like us, but not act like us. He condemned sin in the flesh in that, in that he never, ever sinned. So, sin was not a part of him except your sin and mine, which he took on himself voluntarily, not because he had to. He wanted to. He wanted to die for your sins and mine. He loved us so much. And the Father loved us that much. You, you would not want to sacrifice any of your children. What if you had a firstborn son and somebody says, kill him? That would hurt you. That would bother you. You would even have a real issue on whether or not you would carry it out. Because most people would not. Abraham was... Uh, a way above normal human being. And when God said, I want you to take your son that I promised you long ago and you thought would never happen, really, uh, in terms of time. Abraham believed him, but it, it just seemed like forever before he had the child. And then when it was grown, God said, go kill him. That would have been a tough one. A very tough one. And most people would not have done it. But God felt he knew Abraham well enough that if he told him to do something, he would do it. So Abraham saddled up and headed off to kill Isaac. Now, he also knew God well enough that he also knew there must be some kind of answer here that God is going to provide. And God did. But he simply believed God and did what God said to do regardless of how things looked. That's what faith is. You don't go by looks. You go by what God says. That's what faith is. Because sometimes things just don't look good. But if you obey God, they'll always turn out that way in the long run. Maybe not immediately, but in the long run. So the righteousness of the law, verse 4, might be fulfilled in us. Now how does the righteousness of the law get fulfilled in us if we say it's done away and don't keep it. Impossible. The righteousness of the law has to be fulfilled in you and me. We have to keep it in righteousness, and it creates righteousness. Again, the law defines righteousness. Without the law of God, there is no righteousness. Because it is the best way to live. 
And we don't walk after the flesh. We walk after the Spirit, trying to do according to God's will, God's purpose, His Spirit, and He doesn't break the law. For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh. Before we knew truth, before we converted, fleshly things is what we did. That's what was on our mind. But they that are after the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. You think about the things of God and the Spirit of God and the ways of God a lot more now than you did before you were converted. Your mind was just on family and materiality and all that stuff before. Well, you might have gone to church once a week on Sunday and you were kind of spiritual acting for an hour or two, but for the most part, it was just the things of the flesh. Family, job, whatever. And your thought process wasn't on God on Tuesday morning and Thursday evening for the most part. And now it is. It's, it's there all the time. You, you can't run from it. You can't hide from it. You can't get away from it. You know the truth. The truth is in your mind. The Spirit of God is in your mind. And therefore, when you go through life, you are constantly sorting and weeding out thoughts and actions to see that you do it according to God's way and not yours and the world's way. Now, that doesn't mean that you don't do it anyway sometimes or think it anyway sometimes, but it bothers you when you let it go. And then you think, of, oh, was I thinking that? I know better than that. But the law was weak through the flesh. <laughs> That's the problem. The Spirit minds the things of the Spirit. It thinks about spiritual things and how to be spiritually like God. Verse 6, For to be carnally minded is death. To be natural, normal minded is death. The carnal mind just simply means the natural mind of man apart from the Spirit of God. Just the natural, normal, everyday human being what everybody around you is and what you used to be. That's the carnal mind. And it is death. To be normal, natural, as a human being, brings death. Because we sin. That's the normal human way, is to sin. But to be spiritually minded is life and peace. So... The law is of the Spirit, and we have to have our carnal mind changed, converted to thinking like God thinks, and that will lead toward life, life eternal, and peace. Carnal minds do not lead to peace. I was discussing some of this earlier this morning with some guests from... from uh, the Netherlands, Dutch people. Uh, she had a background in political science, so we discussed some things about Europe and Russia and the United States and what's going on, and, and uh, quite interesting to, to talk to them about it from a European standpoint. But they were 
absolutely delightful people. Just warm and friendly and helpful and kind. And I'd love to have them in my family. If I could adopt them, I would. They want me to come to Amsterdam and come see them. And I says, come back here anytime. If my rooms are booked, I'll find a spot for you. Just, they got confused last night. They didn't know how far distances are here in the West. I get this text about 10.30. We're still an hour and a half away. Uh, I'm pregnant. I'm tired. I don't know what to do. So I says, well, I'll go out to the road and meet you so you get here easy. I get a text in a little bit. They, they got into Fredonia, and there's that little Grand Canyon motel probably is where they stopped. And he says, we've made different arrangements. We're just too tired to go on, and it's dark, and we're not used to driving in the dark. Europeans, everything's close together over there. About 15 minutes later, I get this text. Is it okay if we still find a way to come to your place? This place is filthy. <laughs> so I drive back to the road and wait for him. Took myself a nap, waiting for him. And uh, this morning, I'm, I'm laying this groundwork for you. This morning, she says, I'm going to book another night here. <clears throat> she says, I won't be here, but I'm going to book another night. And uh, because of the confusion last night and, and the trouble we caused you, uh, you're not charging enough anyway. She says, I'm going to book another night and you'll get paid for two nights just out of thankfulness for being kind to us. And I told her later, I, I told her then, I said, you don't need to do that. It's okay. Don't worry about it. A little bit later, my phone dings. She's booked another night. Tuesday night. They won't be here. They're, they're going on. But I get paid for two nights. I, I bring that up because... God so loved the world, the whole world, that He gave His only begotten Son for every human being. I, I thought of bringing this up because we're going to get into predestination here in a moment, but I, I guess I'm already laying the groundwork for what comments will come then. The world is full of people who are carnal, and there's a lot of negativity, a lot of sin, a lot of crime, a lot of violence throughout the world and yet in people there is a lot of wherever you find it kindness and love and generosity and a lot of good qualities that can be trained into us carnal as we are but when I meet people like that wherever they're from these people happen to be from there and there was a Russian couple here last night as well and they were also just so delightful. I read the stuff in the news about the United States and Russia button heads and the Chinese button heads. I don't want war with Russia, do you? The American people don't. But those people in Washington that like to money make money off of wars do. And I told that Russian couple they, they want to come back. And I says, Well, I'd love to have you back any time. And I says, I hope our countries aren't at war within the year because of politics. But I meet those Russian people and they were just so warm and friendly and kind. Maybe they're just on vacation, you know. But just lovable people. And, and you run into people like that all the time from around the world. 
And it makes me think, wow, 95% of the people on earth are going to die. And it's sad. It's truly sad. And it makes me, it, it underlines for me why God is going to call the faithful to Zion to set up a situation similar to the kingdom of God that can be used as an example to show people how things could be if it weren't for the human, satanic way that the world is being run. And they won't listen. But that message has to be delivered not with animosity, not with vengeance, not with hate for those people out there who are sinning so terribly. It has to be with love. It has to be with love. You want to see those people converted and in the kingdom of God. Hitler, Stalin, Mussolini, Obama, Hillary. Name a few of our whipping posts. you got to love them. They're carnal as you can get. <clears throat> if you want to make a comparison between them and what? What would it be? A rattlesnake? In terms of conduct today? A lot of them? But they have the spirit in man that God put in all humans. And there is hope for salvation for the absolute worst of them, including me. So, the message has to be a message of love and kindness and hope and point back to Zion and say, the whole world could be like this if you would just bow your knees to Christ. So, it's, it's not a message of you're going to die because of your sins out of hatefulness. No. It's repent, change, grow. Be like God, and He will give you life eternal and peace and happiness and joy. That's the message that has to go out to them. And to me, it, it emphasizes that when I meet people from all over the world, as we've been since we've been renting a house over here and now my rooms, that there are just lovable people that come from everywhere. They're just sweet people. And I don't want to see them die. I know that people who come through my doors here within five years are going to die some very horrible deaths. That sweet little girl that's six and a half months pregnant is going to have that baby two and a half months. It will probably die of starvation. Or the parents themselves may kill it and eat it. It's what the, it's what the prophecies say, isn't it? Now what it says? Now is Satan powerful or not? And is human nature vile or is it not? And yet Paul is giving a message of hope here to both Jew and Gentile, to everyone. And there has to be a message of hope go out to the world here at the end time. The gospel of the kingdom of God is the message. Not a gospel of you sinners are all going to perish and go to hell. That's not the message. The kingdom of God is coming and everyone can have salvation if they'll just serve God. That's what it's all about. So we are here 
to love not the sin, but to love all the world the way God and Christ loved the world. We need to love the people of this world as much as He who sent His Son to die for all mankind while they were yet sinners. This, I'm just, this is just attitude adjustment a little bit to talk about what the focus should be and what the real message is. I think maybe 50 years ago when I was a kid, when I thought of the two witnesses, maybe it went through my mind, sock it to them. Go out there and tell them how bad they are and put the plagues on them. Maybe it wasn't quite that mean, but, but the mentality was such that I didn't understand how the love of God needs to be put out for them so that it's there and they heard it. And then when they come up in the second resurrection, they'll be all ears. Oh yeah, that's what those guys were talking about. <laughs> you know, I think I'll do this this round. To be carnally minded is death. But to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Now let's understand verse 7 in the light of Jeremiah 17, 9 and other passages. Because the normal, carnal, human, fleshly mind is enmity against God. It is an enemy of God. That's what enmity means. It is totally opposed to God in anything godly. How so? Selfish? What's its own way? wants to do what it wants to do, doesn't want to be told what to do, doesn't want to be told how to live, wants to say whatever I want to do is what I'm going to do. That's enmity against the way of God, which is selflessness, giving and serving and helping others and getting along with them. Now, God loves the whole world wants to save it all. But some so-called Christian preachers are preaching everybody to hell. <laughs> you know? But how does that fit the Word of God? <clears throat> and predestination does the same thing, as we'll see here in a little bit if I get that far. To be spiritually minded is life and peace. Your normal mind is enmity, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. Now, why does he say that the natural mind is not subject to the law of God? and puts it as a negative thing in saying it can't be, if the law is done away, why even comment on it? Why bother? If there is no such thing, why are we discussing it? Forget about it. Let's move on without the law. No. The mind needs to be subject to the law of God. It's the reason he's discussing it here. And then he says to that, So then... They that are in the flesh cannot please God. To be a normal, natural human being, like all your neighbors around, you cannot please God. Those people cannot please God. Can't do it. Because their mind is against God. And how do you get along with somebody you can't stand? They can't stand God. That's what it's all about. If you follow the way of God, they can't stand you. Right? When you first started beginning to keep the way of God, the law of God, 
your neighbors, your friends, your relatives repudiated you immediately. They saw the beginnings of God in you and hated it. Natural animosity at enmity. They hated you worse than they hated Buddha. They would accept a Buddhist, but they wouldn't accept you. They will not accept God. And they will not accept God in you. Now, those of us who do live God's way, and God brings out and protects, what's going to happen? The whole world will hate us. Everybody's going to be deceived and take the mark of the beast and worship Satan, except the very few, the very elect, who will not be deceived and will continue to obey God, and the whole world will hate you. Why? Because they see God in you, and they hate God. Now, so-called Christians will say, oh, I love God. No, they don't. They don't even know who God is. This is, 1 John 5, 3, This is the love of God that you keep the commandments. How are you going to misinterpret that statement? It's not vague. It's not hard to be understood. It's just a very simple definition. So if they don't keep the commandments, they don't love God. Because love of God is defined by commandment keeping. So you're not a Christian if you don't keep the commandments. If you say they're done away, you're not a Christian. Not a real one. I know that's hard to understand because when you were a Protestant, if you were, or a Catholic or whatever, you thought you knew God. But you didn't. You can't know Him unless you know His ways. And He won't give you His Spirit unless you obey the law. So, these people out here who think they have the Spirit of God don't have it at all. They have the space, they have the Spirit of Satan and don't know it. It's what Christ told the Pharisees. You worship, you know not what. You are of your father, the devil. When I was a Methodist, I was of my father, the devil, and I didn't know it. I thought Christ was in Christmas till I was eight years old. And then I learned that he wasn't there. If you're in the flesh, thinking in the flesh, you can't please God. But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now, that doesn't mean you are spirit, because you're not. Pinch yourself and you'll find out. You're still physical. But you're in the Spirit. You're walking in it. You're seeking to please God through it. And if you have His Spirit in you, uh, well, let's, let's read it. But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now, if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. He doesn't count you as one of His unless you have the Holy Spirit dwelling in you. 
and he only gives his spirit to them that obey. So people who do not obey and think they have the spirit of God are deceived and do not at all, and they're not of Christ. This is pretty plain. And if Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. Now, we've all sinned and come short, and we're all physically going to die. And that's the, case, that's the situation that we're in unless something changes. Now, what about all of our relatives and friends who died not living in the Spirit? They, at this point, have no hope. They had no hope while they were alive, and now that they're dead, they know nothing. So there's no hope there. Now they're going to be resurrected in the second resurrection. And they're going to come to life. And they'll still have that carnal human mind that they've always, always had while they were alive here. And they will still no, have no hope of eternal life. Good Methodists and Baptists as they may have been. So what's going to happen? You and I, who walk in the Spirit today, will be Spirit then, and we will be there to help show them God's plan of salvation. Now, they couldn't please God while they were here on this earth. My grandma Miller was just as sweet a person as I could have ever met, and so was my, that was my great-grandmother, and my grandmother. Just as sweet, lovable a Methodist as you could possibly know. But she had no clue whatsoever of anything truly godly. She prayed. She went to church every Sunday. But she didn't have a clue who God was. The real God. And there she'll be. Standing up out of her grave. And I hope I can be there and say, Grandma, you died. And now, for some inexplicable reason that you did not understand, you're alive. And you got dirt clods hanging out of your hair from having laid in the ground and gone dust to dust and rotted. Now what, Grandma? I haven't a clue. <laughs> I thought I would be on a pink cloud by now. I thought I was going to heaven. And here I'm coming up out of the ground. And I can say, hey, got something I want to tell you. If you'll do this and this and this and this, you can live forever, not in heaven, but right here on this earth. Really? You're kidding me. No, I'm not. I want to tell you about the real God. The real God that can give you eternal life. If you will bow your knee to the true God instead of the Methodist preacher and, and the devil. Oh. Or the Catholic pedophile guy. You know? I didn't do you any good, did it? Well, must not have. I didn't go to heaven. Ah, now you're ready to listen a little bit. Let's talk. You know, and I love her. I loved my grandmother and my great-grandmother. I used to sit and listen to their stories by the hour when I was a little kid. I thought very well of them. I, I just loved them to pieces. 
and then I saw them die and I knew that they were going to go in the ground that's as far as they were going to get but I really looked forward to saying hi good to see you you look like death warmed over <laughs> well she will she'll be been warmed over brought back to life now we can talk about true spiritual things instead of just the Methodist Women's League or whatever they got. I don't even remember. Okay. If you're in the flesh, you can't please God. Verse 9, But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if so be that the Spirit of God dwells in you. That's through true repentance laying on of hands and the conception of God's Spirit. It's the only way it can come. Now, if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. Doesn't count. At least not yet. And if Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. So we were dead to righteousness. Now we are alive to righteousness and dead to sin. Sin no longer reigns over us. That doesn't mean that we don't sin from time to time, but we don't live in sin, and we're living in a state of grace or forgiveness so that the, Christ, the sacrifice of Christ continually is there to cover our sin so that we don't have to walk around in guilt and condemnation. <coughs> Which is a point I've been trying to get across to all of us because it is imperative that we understand that the past is gone. It isn't there anymore. We are no longer under condemnation and guilt of anything we ever thought or did before. The blood of Christ was a very real thing. It's not a symbol only. It actually drained out on the ground. It drained out. I'm sure somebody will come up with a bowl of it one of these days that they dig up somewhere and say, "This, I found the real cross and here's the blood of Jesus. See how it's caked and dried? Oh, I'll shed a little tear because it's the real blood of Jesus. Would you like a drop? It'll only be a thousand bucks. <laughs> on and on it goes. Verse 11, But if the Spirit of Him that raised up Emmanuel from the dead dwell in you, He that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by His Spirit that dwells in you. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh, to live after the flesh. Who are we in debt to? The one who died for us. We're not in debt to this flesh. What do we owe this flesh? All it's done is give us trouble. <clears throat> we are in debt to the one who can deliver us from trouble. So, you don't owe your fleshly carnal mind that wants you to do wrong all the time a thing. You don't owe it anything to follow it. What, what, do, you, what do you owe your human nature? Well, maybe sometimes you think you owe it something. I've worked hard. 
I deserve this. I got all this money. I deserve that. <clears throat> so you think that there's a debt owed. He's no. There's no debt there. You don't have to follow the flesh just because you're a human being. You don't owe it a thing. This flesh has done nothing but cause us trouble. No, I, we're into the debt to the one who can deliver us from trouble. That's who we're in debt to. I owe Christ my very life and everything in it. Because I would die eternally if He had not died for my sins. I'd have to die for them. So I owe Him my life totally and entirely. I am in debt to Him throughout all eternity. To serve Him, to love Him, to be His slave, to be His bride, to be His brother, to be His companion, to be His friend. To be faithful and loyal to He who saved me from myself and the devil. There's the one I owe a lot to. There's the one I owe everything to. You know, when my wife was laying there dying, she knew it and I knew it. She says, I don't want to die, but I don't want to live like this either. She says, I want to be here to help you finish the work. But she knew she was dying unless God healed her at that point. And you know, there wasn't a thing I could do for her. Nothing. Try to help ease her pain a little bit. But I couldn't. I couldn't help her. I couldn't do anything for her. I couldn't give her life. I couldn't give her health. Now she's dead. But you know what? There's somebody that can raise her up. I can't. What can I do? Not a thing. I can go visit her grave. Talk to her, but I don't hear nothing back. And if I do, I'm going to run. <laughs> you know? But I know somebody can resurrect her. They can give her life eternal. I couldn't do that. I owe him because he's going to bring her back. She's going to live eternally in peace and joy and never feel any pain or any sorrow or any suffering or shed another tear ever, ever. I owe Christ a lot. He said He'll do the same thing for me that He'll do for her. There's where my debt is. He's the one I owe. So we don't have to live after the flesh because of some false sense of debt we think we owe to this life. <clears throat> for if we live after the flesh, or if you live after the flesh, you shall die. He's speaking eternally here. But if you through the Spirit do mortify, crucify, kill, is what mortify means. The word mortician comes from that. Mortify. The deeds of the body, you shall live. So what we have to do is kill or crucify what the body tells us it wants to do. Because the body wants to do sin. The body wants to do anything that sounds like fun, no matter what it is. 
And it pulls us to go that way. It wants us to lie to get out of trouble. It wants us to steal to get rich. It wants us to commit adultery and fornication because it sounds like fun. The human body will take us into all kinds of ungodly things that will kill us. But he says, if you will kill it, not give it life, not give it opportunity, if you kill it, you'll live eternally. So we have to turn against everything that our body wants to do, basically. It's like they say about the best diet, if it tastes good, spit it out. Not always true, but kind of generally so. Most of the things we like best are the things that we probably shouldn't really eat. Can't go by your taste buds. And you can't go by your conscience and your humanness and what your mind and body tell you you want to do. You've got to kill that. Get rid of it. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. What family do you want to be in? What town did you grow up in? I grew up in a small town, and there were certain families in that town that were on the right side of the track and had all the good stuff, and there were those that were on the other side of the track that didn't have so much good stuff. And some had reputations in the town, good reputations, even though they were probably bad people. But they were looked up to in the community, in other words. So, who would you have rather been? These people down here that had holes in their shoes, or these up here who had lots of fancy shoes? Keeping up with the Joneses, you know, the old expression. Yeah, we wanted to be in the Jones family. We envied those... Johnson's or the Smith's over here who had things that we didn't have. Boy, what would it have been like to be born in that family? I'd get me a new car when I was 16. You know, and, and the girls or the boys would be after me or all this stuff. He says if we will be led by the Spirit of God, we'll be part of His family. That's what a son is. The God family. Can't get any better than that. They're way ahead of the Smiths and the Joneses. Those who are the sons of God. But you know what? The world looks at us and will look at us when they know us as being way down on the bottom end below the tracks. That's the way they'll look at us. And yet we will know that as a part of the family of God, soon to be actually born into that family that we have far more than they do. We are the elite, not the perceived elite, but truly the elite. You are far more elite than the Rothschilds. Get it? They got billions and billions, maybe trillions of dollars. They consider themselves the elite of the world, along with other families that are incorporated with them. Nuh-uh. Not a chance. They're the lowest of the low. 
They're kingmakers who put people in charge of governments. They have power on this earth. And God says that He puts over the nation's what? The basest of men. The very worst. Look at the kings, the presidents, the chancellors around the world, and they are among the worst of men on this earth. Now, we didn't used to think of that about our presidents, did we? No, when I was in high school civics, grade school, I was taught to look up to congressmen and judges and presidents, that they were wonderful people and they had the best interests of our country in mind and, and they were duly elected and they were just honorable, obedient, faithful servants of the people. Boy, there's some pie in the sky. Now look at them. Our own leaders. Sexual sins, lying, cheating, insider trading, you name it. It's all there. They're, they are filth. They are vomit. And that's becoming obvious now to people. Like a, It wasn't that way a hundred years ago. It just wasn't that way at all. Even 50 years ago, that I can remember, it wasn't like that. But it is now. And they consider themselves the elite. Those scoundrels in Hollywood consider themselves elite. They're just trash. They're just trash. You're the elite. Let's get it. Let's understand it. Be humble. Be meek. Don't be vain about it. But understand that we're the candidates to be the sons of God, to be adopted into His family and to be the bride of Christ forevermore. The Father and the Son are the elite beings in the universe by quadrillions of light years. And we're to be right there with them. So what's all this poor pitiful me stuff we hear? Oh my, I'm just so... I'm so old, or I'm so crippled, or I'm so weak, or I'm so mentally retarded or I'm so this ah, come on you have the greatest opportunity on earth just a few of us we have nothing to feel sorry for what issues we have are just physical for the most part you know why do I need... You know, I got... I ran a four-wheeler over my knees. Whose fault was that? Duh. So now I have crippled knees like a 95-year-old with bad arthritis. I can just barely get up and down. I have to pull myself up sometimes because of an injury. And I could say, oh my, I just feel so old today. I think I'll just stay in bed. But then they start hurting laying there. So, why feel sorry for myself? Be thankful of my calling. That I'm called to be God. That I am of the elite of the earth. That all the trials, troubles, tribulations, pains, and difficulties of this life are just there to teach me how to be a better elitist. 
to teach me humility and meekness and compassion on others? That's what they're there for. You know, since my wife died, I think I have more compassion now for others than I did before. I understand widows and widowers more than I did before. I cry easier than I ever did before. My emotions are more real than they ever were before. It's been a hard trial. But I hope I've learned something by it. And I hope I learn more. Do I feel sorry for myself? Not most of the time. I just look to God and say, I know you're going to fix it. You're there. Everything's going to be taken care of. And for, and for her, it is taken care of. She's not in pain. She's not hurting. She's not watching these enemies around us persecute us and stressing her out. She's not suffering. I do. But then, that's part of the learning process. So I'm not going to sit around and feel sorry for myself. At least not much. I try not to. There are times that I get that way. But I don't let it last long. No. We are the ones God is working with. And we need to grasp that and understand it and realize that relatively speaking, we are the important ones on this earth at this time. It isn't the leaders of the world's governments that are important. It's us. Important to the kingdom and the plan and the purpose of God. We are key members of that family to come. And we must continually keep that before our eyes, lest we be discouraged and de defeated by whatever physical trials we might be going through. They're the sons of God if they're led by His Spirit. For you have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear. We're not to be living in fear. We don't have to fear the sins that we've committed. We don't have to fear our past. We don't have to be under that kind of bondage. I have dealt with a lot of people over the years who had, oh, maybe they were physically abused as a kid, pedophilia of some kind, or maybe they themselves had been uh, quite the sinner. I've talked to ex-prostitutes, and they're carrying quite a load of guilt and, and frustration from the past. But once you are converted, that past is wiped away. You don't have to worry about it anymore. But it's hard for people who have had that kind of experiences in life to forget it and move on. <coughs> and I think that's why we have Rahab the harlot in Hebrews 11. Is one who will be in the kingdom of God. Because that woman offers an awful lot of hope to people who have been similar to her. All they have to do is repent and serve God and all that will be gone and there will be a 
part of the bride of the most elite husband on earth. Can't beat that. So we move forward, not backward, and we don't get stuck in the past. You've not received the spirit of bondage to live in fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption whereby we cry, My Father, My Father. That's why Christ told us, Pray, My Father, or Our Father in Heaven. Because now we are adopted into the family of God. Can you believe that? You take a bunch of us you know what a mess it would be to have everybody sit here one at a time at a table and tell us all the details about their life in the past. That would be kind of a... Ugh, that'd be a mess, wouldn't it? To hear everything that everybody had ever done. No. That's the kind of people that God adopted into His family. That's the kind of people He wanted. He didn't call the mighty and the noble of the world. He called the weak and the base. You know what it means to be called the weak and the base? It means you were weak and base. That's all it means. Weak, giving into sin. Base, that's, that's the lowest level. That's bottom of the barrel or just under the barrel, somewhere there, is what that is. That's the kind of people God has called. To make them elite. And you are on the road to elitism because you have been adopted into God's family. Now, I said earlier that that couple from the Netherlands today, if I could adopt them into my family, I'd, boy, would I, I'd do that in a minute. I'd trade three to one some of the relatives I've got to have some people like that. Of course, they're, they're human too. I, I didn't know them that long. But just on the surface, wonderful people. The kind I'd like to have in my family. Now God took us, such as we were and are, and adopted us. I want that one in my family. Yeah, I understand. Pretty weak, pretty base. <clears throat> Not anything to brag about. Is the church of God anything that God would come and want to brag about today? Puke all over the ground. That's what we are. Puke on the ground. Is God going to come down here and say, Hey world, I want you to look at the ones that I've adopted. That particularly rotten one there that smells of barf. And this one over here that looks like a half-digested pea. These are mine. He ain't going to do it. Do you think he wants to show the world what we are today? No. We're not worth looking at. Put her in the dark corner in the late shift, you know. Nobody wants to look at this. This church. Now, what's he going to do? He's going to bring the faithful who respond to him <coughs> to Zion <coughs> in a forgiven state of grace and he is going to begin to bless them and their righteousness will no longer be human selfishness and self-righteousness 
And what we are, selfish to the core, narcissistic, you name it, that's us. Then he's going to change it so that the righteousness we have is his righteousness in the Spirit. Then he will say to the world, these are my adopted children. I am going to give them life eternal. They're going to rule in a kingdom where the streets are paved with gold. They will be the elite of the universe, above the angels. These are the ones that I have called, set aside, and I'm protecting them from the devil and the beast and the false prophet. And I'm going to send my son to marry them, and I'm going to come along and rule on the earth with them for a thousand years. Now, that's the ones that he's going to tell the world about. Those that have been transformed. Those that are different than they used to be. (coughs) They are not weak and base anymore. Because by the power of the Spirit of God, they have become righteous. And kind and loving and gentle and obedient and helpful. And servants with a willingness and a readiness of mind to serve all mankind and to bring them into the kingdom of God so they can share all the joys that we have come to have. That's what he's after. No, he's not ready to show us to the world yet because we're not ready to show to the world. But he's going to pull us together and give us his righteousness and then he'll say to the world, Here's the bride for my son. These are the ones that I'm blessing. They're living on the right side of the tracks now. Come on over. That's the message. The Spirit itself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. See? Then He'll be willing to speak of us. Then He'll be willing to tell the world, These are my children. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. When he says, I want you in my family, he means it. You know, people who are in the family will go to the reading of the will and wonder if they're in it or out of it. Or how much of it they're going to get. Because they don't know. And they may have been at odds with and enemies of the one who died and left the will. And they may be sitting there saying, yeah, I bet I'm left out. No. He says that once once you're in my family, you're not going to get left out. You're part of the family now. And an acceptable part of the family. One that I am willing to tell the world about. God's Spirit witnessing with our spirit that we are truly the children of God. Not the puke of Laodicea, but now, honest, righteous children of God. And heirs, heirs of God. Well, what does God have? Everything. The universe. So we're heirs of the universe. Can you get any more elite than that? Joint heirs with Christ. Whatever He receives, we will also receive. If so be that we suffer with Him, 
that we may be also glorified together. He suffered while he was on this earth, and he learned by the things he suffered. We are suffering on this earth, and hopefully we're learning by the things we suffer so that we can be brothers with Christ. Now, he learned compassion for us by living as a human being. We learn compassion for our neighbors here in the world by going through what they're going through. You know, we're not fully members of the God family yet. When that child is in the mother's womb, it's not really fully your kid yet, is it? You don't know what his ears are going to look like and its toes. In fact, you start counting some of that stuff as soon as they're born to see what of this they got and what of that they got and is everything normal. When my first son was born, I almost sent him back. Shove him back in there. He'd been in the birth canal for like 36 hours and his head is that big around and about that long. Didn't look human to me. Looked like a hot dog. In fact, it was kind of curled at the top, and I, that's Woody Woodpecker. How did that happen? No. I wanted him to look a lot like me. And here he looks like Woody Woodpecker. Send him back. As long as he was in the womb, I didn't know what he looked like. A couple, three days later, he looked almost human. But, you know, the head kind of rounded out a bit. But... Until we are in the kingdom of God, we can't even grasp what it would be like to be born into that. So, we're like a baby in the mother's womb. We're not really there yet. But when we're born into the kingdom and made spirit, then we'll be fully there. Then we'll be fully the sons of God. Then we'll get it. So, we suffer that we may be also glorified together. The suffering that we go through is intended. God doesn't remove all our suffering. He does not remove all our pain. He does not remove all of our psychoses and problems, does He? And in fact, we get worse and worse and worse as we age, till finally, we're just not worth much as a human being. I've seen a lot of human beings that were right... Right at the end of this whole thing, sitting in nursing homes, in a wheelchair in the corner, drooling on their chest day and night. There ain't much left. There's just not much left. And that's where we're all headed. And then shortly after that comes the dirt sleep. But God has set up that process on purpose. I'm getting older. You're getting older. We feel it, don't we? It's part of the lesson we're here to learn is that this life is temporary, and what I was when I was 25, I'm not anymore. I'm just not that anymore. I'm headed to death. Rot. Oh. So he made this whole process of aging to teach us something. And it's not pleasant. Getting old and creaky and cranky and not even able to stand up and walk or eat and have it digest properly 
you know, and on and on and on it goes. The things that go wrong with our human bodies is part of the process God ordained that we might suffer on this earth and learn compassion and pity for a world that needs saved and learn meekness and humility. How humble are we at 80 compared to what we are at 20? Well, I've seen some pretty vain old fools too, but but you think you have so much to be proud of at 20 that there's not a whole lot left to be proud of. You ain't got no teeth, you ain't got no gallbladder, you haven't got a arm, you haven't got a, you know, name it. It's gone, so it's not there to be proud of anymore. And you look in the mirror and you just soon not see what's there. It ain't very pretty. So this whole process should humble us and make us meek and realize that we need help from some direction. And there's only one direction it's going to come from, and that's God in heaven. These scientists are not going to give you life eternal with good looks. Sorry, it just ain't going to happen. So that we might be glorified together. Verse 18, For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Everything we go through down here that's hard, difficult, painful, sorrowful, is nothing compared to what we're going to be in the resurrection. So he's trying to encourage us here that let's move on toward the kingdom of God because that's when all the problems will be removed. And this boot camp down here is to teach us that we don't want to go the way of Satan and our flesh because look what it's produced. And the very best you can be on this earth, the wealthiest, the healthiest that you can possibly be, Solomon says, the same happens to them all. Can't take it with you when you die. No matter how wonderful your life has been on this earth, we're all going to go dirt sleep. It's just where we're headed. So, nothing here is worth saving because it can't be saved. For the earnest expectation of the creation waits for the manifestation of the sons of God. The angel world, the world of God, are waiting with bated breath to see us transformed into spirit. The angels themselves want to look into this. They look down here. They see us. They've been assigned to look over us and to help us and to be servants that we cannot see to us. And they have difficulty with this. They look at us, putrid as we are, weak as we are, ugly as we get, and they say, what could be done about this? I read in here, and Christ Himself told me when we were at the last angel meeting, that these people are going to be greater in power and beauty than we are. And I don't grasp that. Now, you and I have trouble grasping it as well. How, can I, how could I be more beautiful, more powerful, more intelligent than a cherubim of God? 
that can fly at unlimited speed to heaven and earth and shines brightly. How could I ever achieve that or be that or be greater than that? Hard for us to grasp. And the other side of the coin is they look at us and say, how could they ever be greater than us? Because they see our state. And they want to look into it. They don't fully grasp it either. That God could take you and me and transform us into the elitists of the universe. The whole creation waits for the manifestation of the sons of God when the mystery is resolved at the Feast of Trumpets or at the last trump when the mystery of God is truly revealed both to us and to the angels. Oh, that's what he's been telling me about, they'll say. Wow! They are incredible. Man, just yesterday, oh... For the creation was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who has subjected the same in hope. He made us like this and gave us hope that we could be like that. And that's what we're to go on. That's why you can't live in the past. Get it? Forget the past. Don't live there anymore. Make it go away. Don't think about it. Think about what's coming. And what we shall be. That's where our focus needs to be. Because the creation itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and prevails in pain together until now, and not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit. Even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption, that is, the redemption of our body. For we are saved by hope, but hope that is not seen is not hope. You have to envision it. You have to imagine it. You have to meditate on it. (coughs) Think about it. Not feeling sorry for what you are, but glorying in what you're about to be. In what Paul is saying here, there is no room whatsoever for poor pitiful me. <coughs> None. You're not to be thinking about what you are. You're be thinking about what you are to be. And your hope lies in that. Do you want to live in misery and, and feeling sorry for yourself? That's fun. Aren't pity parties a lot of fun? Do you invite everybody you know to your pity party because you know they'll have a good time? No. You suffer in silence. (coughs) Because it ain't any fun for you and it wouldn't be any fun for anybody you'd invite. And they'd tell you to get over it. No. We don't live in pity for what we are. We live in hope for what we shall be. But if we hope for that we see not, then do we with patience wait for it. Let's stop there for today. I've used up pretty much my time, but it, it, it's a theme that goes through here all, all the way through. Is 
look forward to what God has for us, not pitying ourselves for what we lack, and at the same time understanding what we need to do to have that hope fulfilled. That is, become righteous in the Spirit of God, and loving and kind and gentle and sweet and obedient as the angels are, and as the sons of God and the bride of Christ should be. So we live this life trying to follow, to enact what is to be. It's like being on stage in a way, isn't it? What does an actor do on stage? He projects himself as something he is not. I've done a little acting on stage, and I had a character that I was to portray. Now, it wasn't me. It was somebody else that I was portraying. And you can get into that to the point you have to think about it and think, how would this character that I'm acting act? What would they say? How would they say it? Because they're a good guy or a bad guy or something else. So instead of you projecting yourself to the audience, you are projecting the Lone Ranger or somebody, Superman, whatever. So you say things the way Superman would say them. Now we're, we're not to be acting here, but in a sense it's the same. Because you are far different than Christ, are you not? But we are to act like Him. We are to portray Him. We are to live as He lived, walk as He walked, think as He thought, and project ourselves as Christ. And hopefully it will become natural so that we are really, truly like Him. We're not acting anymore. That we have become what we are trying to portray. So, you're not a hypocrite to do and think what Christ would think. Even though you might not be one of doing that. Maybe you want to be over there doing that. But instead, you're here doing this. You is over there. Christ is over here. So you have to act like He did and does, even though it isn't natural to you, and it isn't what you want to be doing and thinking. Until you become like Him. And the act is over. Now it's real. You're really like Him. That's what we're here to do. So, don't be guilty of the past. Don't think the way you were or are. Think where you should be. Just like Christ. Because every one of us is, who's been called out is a direct type of Christ. We can look at some of the prophecies and say, well, Moses is a type of Christ, or Abraham was this, and we can make all these types. Let's not leave ourselves out. We may not be on the level of Moses and Abraham, or Paul and Peter and James, but we're on the level of joint heirs with Christ to inherit the universe. 
So we're here to be types of Christ. That needs to be in our thinking continually when we're in town or here or there. How would Christ do this? How would Christ react to that? Would Christ tell this joke? Would Christ make that comment? Would Christ whatever? And say, oh, I think that was carnal. Maybe I better get rid of that one because I think this is what he would have thought. So it's a constant process. How good an actor are you playing the role of Christ? It's what you are. It's a type of Christ. Act like it. Act like Him. Then you'll be a good actor. And people can look at you and say, Oh, I see Christ in that person. There's a good actor. There's someone that gets it right. That's just the way, that's the way I picture Christ being. That's what God is after with you, so that you look just like your elder brother. That's a challenge, because by nature, we're not like our elder brother. We've got some work cut out for us. So, let's end this and get on with that. <laughs>